Yeah, amen. I, I hope you can join us for that event. Um, we were kind of overwhelmed um, last year at just how many people came. It's um, a great family thing. We do need quite a bit of help, so I hope you can jump in with that. Um, speaking of, of Halloween, um, this passage fits, right? Kind of scary. Um, how do you feel as you um, hear those words from Jesus? They, they may make you feel really uncomfortable, right? You're, you're used to the, the milder, softer version of Jesus, uh, the one who stays away from the shock and awe, who says nothing, who makes you flinch or cringe. He doesn't challenge what you think or how you live, like the, like the music that you, you hear in the, the dentist's office, right? Easy listening, adult contemporary, um, not really that good, but not very offensive either. Uh, this sounds uh, way more metal, don't you think? Some of you are like, finally, right? We've heard enough of this um, blessed are the meek stuff from Jesus. Bring on the Metallica or whatever the, the modern day equivalent of that would be. I have no idea. But you want Jesus with the edge? You don't want the lamb so much as the lion? Love your enemies, really. You prefer the, the Christ that looks like you on social media, right? Flipping the tables around, telling it like it is, fire and brimstone, this Jesus, you can get excited about him, right? So you're like, let's go, preach Jesus. Today we're going to walk through Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, and talk about what these words can mean for us today. We're going to see Jesus, the lion, and the lamb rattle all of our cages. First, I'm going to lead us through a trek through this passage, and then we'll quickly jump into what it could mean for us today. And I don't think any of us are going to walk away happy, but we'll find joy, we'll find rest if we'll listen to Christ here. Last week, Aaron did a great job preaching through the account that comes just before. He talked about John's doubt and ours. But the questions we see from the baptizer there, they take place amidst a generation that was questioning everything Jesus did and said. And in verses 16 through 19, the Lord lets them and us know exactly how he feels there. He tells them, hey, you're acting like petulant little brats. John comes and doesn't party. You question that. You say he's got a demon. I come, I eat and drink with sinners, and you lash out at that too. You call me a drunk? Seriously? But then Christ opens up both barrels on the crowd here in this passage today. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus unloads a rebuke on those people there in Israel for how they had responded to his revelation. They hadn't received it. They hadn't repented of their sins, and therefore, Jesus said, they would be held responsible. Verse 20 says Jesus begins to denounce some cities. Again, not a practice that we often associate with Christ, but specifically he tears into the cities where it says most of his mighty works had been done. So Jesus had, had come and performed healings and exorcisms. He'd given sight to the blind. He'd cleansed the lepers. Paralyzed people had gotten up and walked. He'd even raised the dead. But he calls out cities and what are the cities? Where are they? Well, they're in Galilee. That would have been Christ's home region. That's like Missouri for most of us here. It's where Jesus focused his ministry. Chorazin and Bethsaida, they were both cities on the north coast of that big lake, really, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus, if you remember, had said, hush, 
and the winds and the waves had stopped and obeyed. Capernaum was not only Peter's hometown, Matthew 4.13 tells us is where Jesus had set up his home base. So these were those that Jesus and his disciples, they would have called neighbors and friends, right? They would have bought their, their bread from the guy down the street. They would have met people and talked to them in the streets. And how did most of them respond? Yes, some got mad, we've seen that, but probably most answered Jesus and all of his miracles with a shrug, an eye roll, a whatever. You probably heard the words of Holocaust survivor Ellie Weisel who said that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Imagine standing before the Lord of glory in the flesh and he's working wonders and you just couldn't care less. That's what Jesus righteously rages against here in Matthew 11. Christ says they should have repented, turned from their sins and followed him in faith and because they hadn't, judgment would be coming. Not for just those guys over there, but for those Galileans right there. Now that would have been shocking enough, but the way Jesus puts it, you may have noticed, goes way, way beyond that. He mentions two cities from the Old Testament, two Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, that multiple prophets like Isaiah had called out for their idolatry, for their materialism. And Jesus says, verse 21, if they would have seen the mighty works that you've seen, they would have fallen on their knees, guys. They would have thrown on the symbols of repentance, sackcloth and ashes. Even they would have changed their ways, Jesus pleads to them. And for that reason, it says in verse 22, that their judgment day would be way easier than it would be for those Galileans. Wow. Remember, Jesus, again, is talking about the people of Israel. They were the chosen people. They, they thought the kingdom was theirs to be had. And Jesus starts rattling off this list of Gentile, non-Jewish cities from their past, from their book, places that they had considered dirty, people they had called dogs, and he starts telling them that those ungodly places, their people, they were far better off than them. So if they weren't mad, they probably were now. Now those words would have been shocking enough, but Jesus pushes it even further. Now I grew up in the Cold War days, right? So that, that lets you know my age approximately, but I remember watching the original Red Dawn movie and freaking out. Now let me just say a PSA, any Red Dawn movie that has Josh Peck from Drake and Josh, it just kind of loses some of the, the terror. But there's a scene in the original movie where kids are in the classrooms, they're enduring this typical day of high school, and they look out the window, these helicopters land right out in the schoolyard, and Soviet soldiers step out and they start shooting up the school, right? The USSR, back then, they were the bad guys. Moscow was the capital of that evil empire. So just imagine a, a prophet comes along in America and cries out, all these things I've done before you, right before your eyes, Moscow would have repented. Khrushchev would have even listened. You're going to be looking up at him from your view in hell, guys. Or maybe in my grandparents' generation, if he would have said, Berlin, they would have repented at all you've seen. Adolf Hitler's going to put you to shame. The Nazis, the Nazis, they had better hearts than you guys. 
think how that would have played. Listen to verse 23 again. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Does that, does that sentence bring anything to mind? When I first um, heard that, and it's probably because I'd been reading through the, the field guide, grabbed one of those through Isaiah, it brought to mind something immediately. Isaiah 14, there's this, this passage where the prophet speaks, he forecasts this day when God's people would sing and triumph over their enemies. Verses 12 through 15, listen to these. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid them nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is telling them there in Matthew 11. Verse 4 of, of Isaiah 14 calls these words a taunt against the king of Babylon. That's what this is about. Like some have said, it, it kind of pictures the fall of Satan. I mean, possibly there's an allusion to that, but he's, he's mainly talking to Babylon. Jesus is clearly referencing that in Matthew 11. So here we have the archetype of everything bad and wicked, the very epitome of evil. The city that's set in contrast to Jerusalem itself in the Old Testament. Babylon, the the evil empire that carried God's people off into exile, into slavery. Babylon, whose name lives on to the end in the book of Revelation that gets tossed into the lake of fire. Jesus here is comparing good old Israelite kids to them, right? That's what he's doing. But wait. There's more. Look at verses 23 and 24. What's the city that Jesus says faces an easier, even easier judgment than those people in Capernaum? Yeah, Sodom, right? So if there's any city in the Bibles that they read that would have been associated with sin and unrepentance, it's that one. After all, arguably, they're the ones where the expression fire and brimstone even comes from, right? Jesus says, if they would have seen what you've seen, that city would still be standing because they would have been on their faces. Whoa. Scholars have have labeled Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum the evangelical triangle. So it's just the, the center of where everything that Jesus did took place. Jesus tells these guys, you're in way more trouble than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Babylon, the the original axis of evil. Things would have been pretty awkward after Jesus' tirade that he gives here. Because Jesus is going Old Testament prophet on the people of Israel to these ones that saw all these works and just said whatever to him. Except he's the new Moses. He's the prophet of prophets. Jesus, I think, here teaches, if you notice, that he doesn't just know what will happen. His knowledge is even more comprehensive than that. He even knows what would have happened. Christ here hints, it seems, that there will even be levels of judgment someday. And they, the people of Galilee, he says, would be at the bottom. Wow. 
They had not responded to his revelation. They hadn't received him. They hadn't repented of their sins, and therefore, they would be held responsible. Well, but how does this passage speak to us today? I want to turn there now. Well, some passages of Scripture have some pretty obvious application. For others, you have to do some mining to get to the gold. We may read this and wonder, how does Jesus going off on some cities way back in ancient Israel, how does it mean anything to us today, to our lives? Romans 15.4 teaches us, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So we can have that promise as we read the Bible with every text. And we can believe that in these words of Jesus, there's instruction, there's encouragement, there's a pathway to hope even, if we'll dig a little. With that in mind, here are four encouragements, challenges really, that I want you to hear from this passage this morning. First, we've been given his revelation and we must respond to it. Revelation. The Lord has revealed himself to us. Just as with these people in Galilee, and we too have to respond. Now you might say, Kevin, um, I've not seen Jesus do any miracles lately. Christ isn't standing here before us now. I haven't seen any blind men see. So what you talking about? Revelation. But we still have access to God's revelation every day. We do, first in the skies, and his creation. Fall's a great time to experience this. Go outside, the Lord reveals himself there, everywhere. Psalm 19, one, the heavens declare the glory of God. They point to his existence, they point to his majesty. Second, of course, in the scriptures. In the word of God, he reveals himself to us. The story of God points us down the road of salvation. Third, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God speaks to our consciences, even if we're not followers of Jesus. For those of us that are disciples of him, though the Spirit will illuminate the Bible for us, he'll shine the spotlight on the glory of Jesus. Fourth, through his signs, Can the Lord still do miracles today? Yes. Does he seem to do it as much now? Probably not. But we can see his wonders that he does in our Bibles. Think back to the Exodus and all the signs God did there. Think of all the miracles that we've seen Jesus do so far in Matthew. We can see those. And yes, we can ask God to do more. Fifth, through the Son. Through the Son. So not just the word inscripturated, the Bible, but the word incarnated, the word of God in the flesh, Jesus. Have you heard these words from the book of Hebrews, how they start? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. So here in the scriptures, through the work of the Spirit, we can see the glory of the Son if we'll just see. And as 
we see we have to respond. No shrugs of the shoulders, no rolls of the eyes. A non-response is actually a response, right? This story of the son is a love story with him as the hero, and the only acceptable response is to receive that love, and then in some way that only comes by his help anyhow to try to love him back. Well, you read this and you hear this, you may think this is unfair. You know, if we'd have been there, we would have seen, well, it's pretty doubtful. Really, only our arrogance would say that. But think about it. Where they stood, they could only see the trees, so to speak. They were in the middle of the forest. But we can look down and and we can see the forest, right? We're on the other side of the cross. We can see, as, as 1 Peter talks about, what angels long to look into, what the prophets hoped for but never saw. We get to see the final chapters of the book. That's where we are, so will we see his revelation and respond? So let's think about the, what the response should look like for us. Second, we must acknowledge our privilege and receive it. Church, he has revealed himself. He didn't have to at all. No obligation from him. It's totally a gift of grace. The Galileans were nothing special. That's not why they got to see what they saw. Neither are we. But he's still spoken to us. And we can't take it for granted, can we? You might have this question, and I understand this one. What about those who haven't gotten to hear? Look at the book of Romans in chapter 1 with me. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the Lord has not left himself without a witness anywhere in the world. Paul says the skies shout. They shout. There's a a God who's made and rules over the earth. And he says each of us is without excuse. It's our sin that leaves us meeting and meriting judgment. For all those cities that are listed in Jesus' passage, that's the case. It was was their sin for which they were being punished. But the revelation we've had, we've even suppressed that. We've turned from acknowledging our creator. We've bowed down, it says, to his creation instead. But catch this, for those of us who've heard of Jesus, we've received even more revelation. 
Not just the skies, but the story of our Savior. And that's all of grace. That's a remarkable privilege. God wasn't obligated at all. He could have walked away and left us in our sin, but he didn't. He sent us his son. He gave us his word. He's left us with his spirit. And unlike these foolish folks here in Matthew 11, we've got to open our hands and receive it. We must acknowledge our privilege and receive it. That's our first response. Receive it. Rejoice in it. Thank him for it. Dance for joy over it, this gift that he's given us. Here's a more specific question of application. We have his revelation, chiefly in the Bible, do we cherish it? Do we soak it up? We will send, and Karas we have, we'll send people all over the world to share it. But will we dig in it deeply ourselves? Are we open to hear his words? Are we eager to hear his words? Are we hungry for his revelation? Because the more we grow, the bigger our appetite will become. Third, which is a second response, we must adjust our posture and repent before it. So isn't that what Jesus is upset about the most here? Their posture. Their backs are turned to all that he has done, or they're, they're standing over him and his words, looking down in judgment. What's our posture, church? One thing that's so sad and really messed up, and this is all of us, but sometimes the more we learn about God, the, the prouder we become, Right? Every, every few months ago, we put up this chart on the screen. If it's not obvious, we want it indelibly imprinted on our brains. I kind of figure that if you miss it every second time or so, you know, maybe you'll get it once a year or so. But the, the horizontal is the timeline of our, our life. We become a Christian, and then we embark on this life of growth. The more we grow, and we may not think of it this way, the two axes widen. They don't get closer. We more and more experience this gap between God's holiness at the top and our sinfulness at the bottom. The gap gets bigger in our understanding. And it gives us the opportunity to experience more and more of the grace of Jesus. His cross bridges that divide. And if we'll live in that tension, if we'll live in what is reality, it'll bring a lot of joy. So we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. We turn from sin, we turn back to Jesus. And that graphic just represents, this just doesn't happen at the start. No, repentance and faith will be a part of our lives for all of our days, right? And that means that we should hear his words and see his works, and what? We should get humbler, more broken every day. We see more and more of the ways our lives just don't line up, and we repent. We must, as Christians, adjust our posture and repent before it, meaning his revelation. Another more specific note of application. Do we, Carlos, do we show the way of repentance? Do we lead out in that, in our city, in the places God puts us? Moms, dads, 
Did you do that before your kids? Is apologizing something that you do naturally or is defensiveness more of your MO? Student in the classroom, friend, servant in the hospital, are you known for being humble? Are you the first person in the room to ask for forgiveness? Because if we are, that can blow people away and that can picture the gospel far more than anything. I love the way I heard Pastor Rich Villadas recently put it. He says, the church must never forget that one of the best ways to establish credibility in the world is by routinely and fearlessly confessing and repenting of sin. And we lose our credibility by refusing to name our sins. Russ Moore's new book, Losing Our Religion, is so great. Um, he, he talks about this therein, and he says, the world needs to see moral consistency from those of us who claim to be the saved. And you may think he's going one direction, but he goes this. He says, the way they see that consistency is not with a people who are without sins and injustices and flaws, but with the people who know how to repent. Wouldn't that be refreshing if people looked at the church and just said, wow, these are people that are so confident in their God that they can just own up, they can apologize. How beautiful would that be? And that's Jesus' main concern here, right? So how do we respond to his revelation? We receive it, we repent before it, but there's more here. What's at stake? What do we learn from Jesus here? Fourth, We've been given his revelation and we'll be held responsible for it. Those are sobering words to hear. I know they're sobering words to say. I said earlier, we've we've received so much from God, the skies, the signs, the scriptures, the spirit, most of all the sun. God shows us that we'll be held accountable for the light of Christ that we've seen. As we often sing here in chorus, to have seen his glory and have turned away, we'll receive, he says, an even harsher judgment from him. Now, if you didn't hear me say this before, this does not mean that ignorance is bliss, no. But arrogance will put us in a category with these people here in Galilee and all of those in our Bibles and throughout history that have heard the words of life said, whatever, and walked away. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, puts it like this. The implications for Western English-speaking Christendom today are sobering. Gee, Don, do you think? These words should jar those of us who've grown up in Sunday school or in Christian families, right? Or have read through the Bible or maybe have been to Bible college or have um, just been in church at any time at all. For those of us who have just enjoyed the freedoms that we have here in the United States, they are sobering. Listen to these words from Dale Bruner. Christian countries are in special trouble on Judgment Day not because Jesus has not really been in their communities, but because he has. Jesus' presence without change can lead to a damnation deeper than Sodom's. 
Capernaum stands for all self-conscious Christianity, for all Christianity smug in its possession of Jesus and its being the center of Jesus' work. Jesus is not always impressed. It's going to go better in the judgment day for notorious pagans than for self-satisfied saints. Some of the matter is this. Christians should take Jesus seriously. When they do, they escape judgment. When they do not, they invite it. Dude, right? Christ has revealed himself to us and we must respond rightly. We must receive it. We must repent before it because we'll be held responsible for how we receive his revelation. Now, as I was working through this and thinking about these words, two, two groups of people came in mind that um, may object to some of what's said here. And, and trust me, I relate to both. But I want to address both of those. First, those who want to go their own way and resist this idea of accountability. So you may think repentance, what? Judgment? Seriously? Maybe that's you, and I understand. Repentance. We're walking in a world, of course, that's all about freedom, where you live your truth. Authenticity is the main goal. The thought of turning from yourself is absurd to most. The idea of sin, of course, seems ridiculous as well. But the Jesus that everyone wants to call a great teacher is the one who taught that we needed to lay down our lives and turn from our sin to do what he says and to bow down to him as king. And the truth is that is where true freedom lies because he made us, he owns us. Our lives just work better when they fit with how we were designed. So turning from sin and trusting in him, it, it may not be easy, but it's worth it. It's the only pathway to hope and joy. Judgment, divine wrath, eternal punishment are taken, of course, even less seriously today than repentance, but each of us just knows that there's something wrong with this world, right? We all want people to be held accountable for their deeds. I mean, we cancel people every day online. We want people to suffer sometimes for life for their sins. Like that's, we get that. That's a part of who we are. We're bearing God's image even in that and having a longing for justice. We just think it's others that deserve this and not us, right? But Jesus says we're all sinners, that we all deserve his wrath. And when Jesus is coming here and he's doing these signs that we see in Matthew, where he heals the sick and he raises the dead, he's pointing to this day of peace when perfect justice will reign, and we all want that. But though we may not be sex traffickers or evil dictators here, we're all a part of this system. We're all a part of a, this unjust world. We're not just sufferers in this world. We're sinners too, and we all need his grace. Second, those who want to assert their righteousness and heap condemnation upon others. Last week, Aaron talked about what's been labeled deconstruction today, people doubting their way out of the community of faith. Some would say it's, it's the type of things that we see here in this passage sin and judgment and all that stuff that, that makes people want to leave. But I think it also 
maybe even supremely has been the way Christians can behave, not just what they teach, but what we, how we sometimes act. Where we're the good guys, you know, we're the in crowd, we're the godly ones, the right ones, and all those people out there are wrong and they're going to pay, right? When I was raised as a kid um, over on the state line, somebody, somebody in the crowd yesterday was asking like, why is everybody chanting about KU? And I kind of had to explain um, what was going on there, some, some person from probably Louisiana or something. Um, but I remember as a kid taking the rivalry a, a bit too far. I remember having this conscious thought and judge me, yeah, Jesus died for me, but just hoping that um, one of those tornadoes that that state is known for would just kind of like pass right through Lawrence sometime. Um, our other uh, rival... Illinois, um, you may not have heard this, but they saw their stadium catch on fire this week. So people are joking about how their football program is literally a dumpster fire. And we might be tempted to share the whole thing would just finally burn down, you know, put them out of their misery, give them some justice. But that's messed up, right? But that's unfortunately how people sometimes often view Christians today. You say you're excited to hear these metal words from Jesus. Who again bears the brunt of these harsh words from him? Not Tyre or Sidon or Sodom or Babylon. It's Galilee, right? The evangelical triangle. It's the supposed people of God. The people who claim to follow him but really don't. Jesus says, you guys know better For that reason, you're going to be held accountable. So church, we can't point our fingers at the people out there, but rather in our mirrors, among these pews right here. Peter in his first letter in chapter 4 says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So do we want to be like Jesus and flip over tables in the temple, right? Well, maybe we should start in the temple. Did you you know that the New Testament now calls the temple the church? No, don't go doing it out in the world. We need to do it in here. What else does the New Testament say is the temple today? You and me, right? We're temples of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. So maybe we should start where my friend Jeff argues that we should. He writes, the location for whip-making and removing impure religion is our own hearts. Drive out sinful cravings, flip out over the idolatry presented within, crack whips, crack whips over the things that need to be confessed. Remove the high places and the low places of our spirituality. Let's flip tables like our Lord. Pursuing righteousness in the court of our spirituality, the heart. We are God's temple. Remove the money changers, the things we've allowed to set up a shop that have no business conducting business in our Father's house, us. Jesus shows us that he wants to drive out what doesn't belong, and he wants to do the same with us. His cross hands us the whip. His empty tomb shows us how to swing. But the good news of the gospel, of course, is this, that Jesus came to take the punishment for our rebellion, 
for our excuses, for our condemnation. He was condemned that we could be accepted. But as we're made right with him, as he saves us, as he grows us, we become increasingly more open and responsive to him, his will for our lives, you know, what he wants us to do, and we become less harsh and less judgmental toward others or something's wrong. So, Karis, let's respond to his revelation. Let's receive it joyfully. Let's repent before it, knowing that we'll be held responsible for how we respond. Remembering that we all fail to respond as we should, but we have a Savior. If we'll repent and believe who's died for us, who's lived for us, and who will, by his grace, bring us home. Back several years ago, um, you might have heard this, commuters in a busy Washington, D.C. subway station were, were treated to some music as they scurried from their trains, and most just walked right on by. They were just completely oblivious and indifferent to these magical tones that were flowing out of a Stradivarius that cost literally millions of dollars. And the famous violinist Joshua Bell, who had just days ago had packed a concert hall, 100 bucks a ticket, was there playing, you know, just dressed like one of us, you know, I think he had a hat on and a hoodie, and he was just completely ignored. A child noticed him. I thought this was funny. This is in the Washington Post if you want to read it. A child noticed him and and tried to pull his mother over to listen, but she pulled him away. I mean, they were, after all, in a big hurry, right? But there's this one woman named Stacy Furukawa who arrived at the very end. She noticed Joshua Bell. She'd been at the show just a few days before, and she says this. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping and not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters? I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? What kind of city? We're the city of God. We're meant to be the light of the world. Friends, have we not failed to respond to one so much greater Let us pray that our cold hearts would be warmed, that our hard hearts would be softened, that we would not be indifferent and say whatever and walk by, but that we would receive him and worship him. I think it's kind of interesting after these words we just saw, the next week's passage that that Jeff will take on contains some of the most well-known and most endearing words of the Bible, verse 25 through 28. You may know those. Come, weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Now that passage is going to say that not all, really quite few, will receive the teachings of the king, the words about the kingdom he brings. It'll be hidden, it says, from the proud, but it'll be revealed to those with childlike faith, like that little kid in the D.C. subway station. They will receive his words, and there will find rest those who respond, who receive the humble, the hungry. The lion, he roars out these words that we see here today. He's also the gentle and lowly one. He's the lamb who's died for us that we might live. So come back, 
hear about him with us next week. Let's pray. Lord, as we, we come around your table this morning, convict us, Lord, for how we have turned from your glory, Lord. Um, not so we could just wallow in guilt, but just convict us of, of how we're, we're selling ourselves short, we're trading down, we're, we're going away from your beauty and joy and glory and grace. Um, the things that don't satisfy, Lord. Pull us toward you, toward your presence, toward your voice. Um, shake us up. Leave us unsatisfied but with anything but you and in your words of life, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.